Hi, this is Thurman Hayes, pastor of First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. We want to welcome you to this message from our services at First Baptist. We are a congregation that is seeking to touch lives through the life-changing power of the gospel. I pray that you'll encounter Christ in his power and love even now as you listen. Open your Bibles this morning to Isaiah chapter 52. Isaiah chapter 52 and 53. We're going to look this morning at one of the most quoted passages from the Old Testament in the New Testament. In fact, it's, it's, it's perhaps the most explicit passage in either Testament that answers the question, what was God doing on a cross? What was God doing on a cross? We see the answer here. If you're using one of the Bibles from our pews, it's page 613. If you want to follow along with me, we're going to begin reading in Isaiah 52. This is really all one unit. It's a unit that begins in chapter 52 and verse 13 and runs throughout chapter 53. So follow along with me in your copy of God's Word. God says, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see and that which they have not heard They understand who has believed what he has heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed for he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, He was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt... He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. 
out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Father, as we come before your word today and as we focus on your saving work and we ask the question, what what were you doing upon a cross? Father, we pray that you would help us to see that as never before. We pray that you would deepen our love for you, our love for the gospel our desire to share this good news. Father, I pray for anyone here who has never trusted in the Savior, that today would be the day that they would turn from trying to save themselves and turn to Jesus and trust Him and understand what He has done for them and and, and come to rest, rely upon His finished work for them on Calvary. Lord, bring home the cross to us more clearly than we've ever seen it. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the books that Melissa and I enjoyed reading to our children in recent years is a book called The Jesus Storybook Bible by Sally Lloyd-Jones. She has a remarkable way of taking all the stories of Scripture, Old Testament and New, and showing how every single one of them points to Jesus. In fact, the subtitle of the Jesus Storybook Bible is Every Story Whispers His Name. We come today to a text that doesn't whisper the name of Jesus. This text shouts the name of Jesus. And the really remarkable thing is that it was written 700 years before the birth of of Christ. Isaiah gives us four servant songs. These are sections of Isaiah that talk about the Messiah to come. And Isaiah refers to Jesus, refers to the coming Messiah as the servant. And this is the last of four servant songs. They're found In chapter 42 of Isaiah, chapter 49, chapter 50, and and this is the fourth and final servant song, this prophecy about the coming Messiah. And in this servant song, in Isaiah 52 and 53, we see five facets of the work of our Savior Isaiah 52:13 through chapter 53 divides into five sections and each of them shines a different light on a facet of our our savior's work for us. It begins in chapter 52 in verses 13 through 15 with his stunning success. We see the stunning success of the servant. These last 3 verses of chapter 52 
really give us a preview and a summary of everything that we're going to see in chapter 53. We see that Jesus pre-existed with the Father in glory before the foundation of the world. We see that He becomes a man. He takes on human form. He comes as a servant and descends to unimaginable depths out of love for us. We see in these three verses that Jesus is now ascended back into glory at the right hand of the Father, and that Jesus is going to return in glory. All in three verses. All in these first three verses. They, they begin in, chapter thir- in verse 13 of chapter 52. God says, behold. Whenever you see that word, behold, it means pay attention. Listen up. Pay attention because life and death, heaven and hell, rest on our response to this servant. And God says about him here in verse 13, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. Literally, you could translate that. My servant shall accomplish his purpose. Because Jesus was going to act with such wisdom that every purpose of his was going to succeed He would know exactly what to do and He would do it. He would accomplish all of His purposes. And then it says of Jesus in verse 13, He shall be high and lifted up. We see that phrase, high and lifted up, three other times in the book of Isaiah. We see it in chapter 6 and chapter 33 and in chapter 57. And all three times, guess who it's referring to? God, Almighty God, because Jesus is God. The time that you're probably most familiar with from Isaiah is in chapter 6 and verse 1, when Isaiah is, is, is given this, 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 this vision. And he says in Isaiah 6, 1, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, and the train of His robe filled the temple. Who was Isaiah seeing that day? John makes it clear who Isaiah was seen that day. Speaking of Jesus, John says in John 12, 41, Isaiah saw his glory and spoke of him. It was Christ that Isaiah saw that day. Christ who preexisted with the Father before the foundation of the world in glory becomes a man, a servant, and suffers, suffers for us. Verse 14 tells us about that suffering. It says, As many were astonished at you, His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance. His, his form beyond that of the children of mankind. It's talking about the, the appearance of Jesus after they finished with Him that night. After that mock trial where Jesus was spat upon and beaten. After they took out a whip with bits of bone or metal or glass embedded into the end and, 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 and lacerated Christ until the question that most people would have asked at that point in looking at Him was, was not, is this God, but is this human? Little did they know that it was all for them, all for us. 
all four people from the nations. Verse 15, so shall he sprinkle many nations. When a leper was cleansed of his disease, the priest would sprinkle blood upon him to to, to show that, uh, that his disease had been cleansed and that he could be accepted back into the community. That's what Jesus does for moral lepers like us. He cleanses us with his blood so that we can be accepted before a holy God. And then Jesus ascends into glory and Jesus is going to one day return in glory. Isaiah says in verse 15, Kings shall shut their mouths because of Him. When Jesus returns in glory, earthly rulers who are prone to make speeches are going to have nothing to say. They will be utterly silent. There will be shock and awe in the presence of the King of Kings. As Paul writes his great passage in Philippians 2, he has this text in his mind. He doesn't just have it in the back of his mind. He has it in the forefront of his mind as he writes these words in in Philippians chapter 2 and verses 5 through 11. Paul says there, he says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. From, from glory to glory. Jesus begins in glory. He, the glory that was His from before the foundation of the world. He, he descends out of love for us, empties Himself suffers and dies for us, ascends back into glory, will one day return in glory. From glory to glory. Now that's just the first three verses of this text. And what, what we're seeing here in these last three verses of chapter 52 is he's, we're getting the big picture of the work of Christ. And now... In chapter 53, we're going to come in with the zoom lens and look at each facet of his work. What do we see in chapter 53? First of all, we see his cruel rejection in verses 1 through 3. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Jesus was born in the most humble circumstances imaginable. 
He bore none of the usual emblems of power, of what we would think of as a king, of of a great deliverer. His parents were so poor and so lacking in influence that they couldn't even secure a room for a, a pregnant woman in labor to have a baby with the result that he was born in an animal pen. And his crib was a feeding trough for animals. Jesus was raised in a, a tiny backwater town in the middle of nowhere, the object of ridicule in a nation among the people that was dominated by a foreign power. Jesus just appears to be an unpromising person in a failed nation. He was dismissed by most, rejected, even by his own people. The Jewish people, his own, did not receive him. John 1, 10 and 11 says that he came to his own people and his own people did not receive him. They rejected him. We see his cruel rejection. And then we see his selfless sin bearing in verses 4 through 6. His selfless sin bearing. Verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. In ancient times when someone was suffering, the common assumption was that they were suffering because of something they had done. And so most people looked at the suffering of Jesus and they thought, what terrible thing has he done to deserve this? What sins is he dying for? Ours. Ours. Theirs. It was for us. And then it dawns on them. It was all for us. Verse 5. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. It was for us. And throughout the Old Testament, we we see this concept of substitution. The entire sacrificial system of the Old Testament was based on it. God was making the point through the sacrificial system of the Old Testament that sin costs a life. When they offered those animals as sacrifices, the point of the sacrifices was that this offering is going to die in the place of the offerer. But of course, none of those animals could truly bear sins. It was all symbolic. They could only point to the one who was to come who truly could and did bear sins. Which is why in John 129, when John the Baptist sees Jesus approaching him for the first time, he says, what? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Peter says in 1 Peter 2 that that He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree. 
And in verse 6, we see why we needed a sin bearer. It's because all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. You know, sheep rarely think beyond the next clump of grass. They just go from clump to clump. Oblivious to the consequences of their choices. To the fact that they're becoming lo- that they're getting lost. Kind of like us. And Jesus says, let the consequences of their, of their choices, their sinful choices, fall upon me. Jesus says, I'll bear it. Let it fall upon me. Jesus knows that He cannot bear our sins and live, but He says, I'm going to bear them anyway. You know, deep down, we know that we need a substitute. I mean, deep down, we know we're not right. We know that we need a sin bearer. This comes out in our culture in all kinds of ways. Even Hollywood is sometimes haunted by this concept of of substitution. You see this at the end of Christopher Nolan's film, The Dark Knight, in which Batman says, let all of the wrongs of Gotham fall upon me. Let me take the blame. Let me be the scapegoat. That concept of the scapegoat is deeply rooted in the fabric of the Old Testament. The priest would place his hands upon the head of this animal and symbolically all the sins of the people were transferred to this goat who would then be cast outside of the city to die. That's what's going to happen in Jerusalem. Jesus becomes a scapegoat. Jesus takes all of our sins, really, not symbolically, but really upon Himself. And He's thrown outside the gates of the city to die as our scapegoat, as our sin bearer. And then in verses 7 through 9, we see His strategic silence. Verse 7. He was oppressed and He was afflicted, yet He opened not His mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so He opened not His mouth. This is speaking about the demeanor of Jesus at His trial the mock trial that He went through for us. When you read the Gospel accounts, Jesus refuses to defend Himself, doesn't He? I don't know about you, but sometimes when I'm reading the Gospels and I'm I'm seeing all these false accusations hurled at Jesus, part of me wants to say, Jesus, speak! Speak in your defense! Defend yourself! But you see, His... His silence is a strategic silence. It was all part of the plan. Because Jesus is going to win by losing. He doesn't want to say anything to prevent His death. Because His death was necessary. So that we could be free. That we could be forgiven. His master plan is to defeat evil by absorbing evil in our place. 
and dying for it so that its power could be exhausted and we could be forgiven. And so he goes willingly in total control of what he's doing. Willingly, silently, he goes to his death. And verse 8 tells us about that. It says, By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, he died the death we should have died. And then in verse 9, we see this amazing detail, prophetic detail about his burial. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Typically, when someone was taken down off of a cross, these people were considered to be criminals. They were just thrown into the city dump. Their bodies were just dumped. And God would not allow that. God intervenes. God, God prompts a wealthy man, Joseph of Arimathea, to take the body of Jesus and lovingly place it into a garden tomb that he had purchased. Now this is the first hint of what's coming. It's the first hint of his exaltation. In verses 10 through 12, we see his ultimate satisfaction. His ultimate satisfaction. Verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. Now we can see, we can understand what we could not understand if we had seen what was going on that day on Calvary with just our naked eye. Because that day, if we had looked at things from just a surface standpoint, who appears to be in control? Roman soldiers, the Jewish leaders, they appear to be in control. They appear to be calling all the shots. Verse 10 tells us who was really calling the shots. This is God's plan. This is God's plan. The Judas, Pilate, the Roman soldiers, the religious leaders, they're just pawns, really. God is, has orchestrated all of this. And why? Why? Why was the will of the Lord to crush him and put him to grief? Because God had to solve the dilemma of his own nature. How can a holy, righteous God who hates sin and must punish sin acquit guilty sinners like us? That's the dilemma. How can that happen? And we see the answer here, don't we? It says when he makes his soul makes makes his when his soul makes an offering for guilt, or literally when he he himself makes his life a guilt offering. God offers himself for himself. He makes himself a guilt offering for sin. As 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He who had no sin became sin for us so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. All of God's righteous wrath against sin, which had to be done to fulfill His justice, it is done. 
It's, it's poured out. God offers himself. He who had no sin. Jesus had no, no sin of his own to atone for so he could die for our sins, you see. And he did. And what's the result of that? We see it in verse 11. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. You see, when we trust in Jesus, when God saves us, he doesn't just pronounce us exempt from hell. He doesn't just pronounce us forgiven, although he does both of those things. He pronounces us righteous. He renders a verdict, a legal verdict over our lives, not guilty, but righteous, righteous. He treats us as if we have never sinned. He treats us as if all of the perfectly righteous actions of Christ are ours. How can it be? How can, how can people like us, so unrighteous, be declared righteous? It's because when we trust in Jesus, the Bible says that the perfect righteousness of Christ is credited to our account. Christ took our guilt. We take His perfect righteousness. Jesus says, here's the deal. If you trust in Me, all of your sin and all of your guilt becomes Mine, and My perfect righteousness becomes yours. Is that acceptable to you? And the only barrier between you and having the perfect righteousness of Jesus credited to your account is if you insist on clinging to your own righteousness and failing to trust the Savior. In verse 12, we see a parade. This is the victory parade. In ancient times, when... A commander was victorious in battle. He would lead the troops back through the streets of the capital city. And they would have all of the spoils, all the trophies that they had won in battle. And verse 12 is picturing the servant coming back through as the conqueror with all of the spoils that he has won in battle. And what's the spoils that Jesus has? It's us. It's us. We're, we're the trophies that He has won. He fought the battle for us. To claim us as His own. To save us. And so you see, the mystery of what God was doing on a cross is really solved here. The real mystery is how God can love us this much. In Dickens' novel, A Tale of Two Cities, Sidney Cartone exchanges places at the guillotine with a condemned man. He takes the place of this man, exchanges places with him, dies in his place, 
And as he takes the man's, the condemned man's place, there's a young girl who has also been sentenced to death. And she sees what's going on. She sees that Sidney Carton has, has, has exchanged places with this condemned man and is going to die in his place. And she looks at this. And she says to him, I think you must have been sent to me by heaven. I think you must have been sent to me by heaven. This is salvation. Not, we don't get saved by looking within ourselves. There's no salvation there. We get saved by looking out from ourselves to Jesus. Abandoning all of our futile self-salvation projects and turning to Jesus Christ and saying to Him, I think you were sent to me by heaven. Let's pray together. Would that be your prayer today? Would you turn to Jesus and say, I believe that you were sent to me by heaven. I believe that you were dying for my sins. That you rose from the dead for me. And right now, I turn from trying to rely upon myself to save myself, relying upon my good works, relying upon anything else, trying to do life my own futile way, I turn to you, Jesus. And I trust in you. I trust in what you did for me on the cross. I receive you into my life as my Savior and Lord. When we do that, Jesus tells us to make it public. In just a moment, we're going to sing a song of invitation. That's been your prayer today. I want to invite you, as others stand, just immediately slip out. I'm going to be right here at the front. Just come share with me what God has done in your life today. Christ was crucified publicly for us. How can we live for Him in the world if we're not willing to stand for him publicly in a gathering like this where we're going to be encouraged and applauding for standing for Christ you come today as soon as others stand you come maybe you've trusted in Christ at some point in the past but you've never been baptized as a believer in Christ we want to invite you to come maybe you're here this morning and you say I want to be a part of this church family You come today as God leads. So, Heavenly Father, we give you this time of invitation. Lord, would you work in hearts and lives for your glory's sake. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together as we sing and be on your way. Thanks for listening to this service of First Baptist Church. We hope you've been strengthened in your faith. We want to encourage you to visit our website at fbcsuffolk.org for more information about the church and about following Jesus. God bless you today.